Let us pray. Almighty God, as we celebrate this season of Lent and as we come into this part of our practice of worship where we open your scriptures, we ask that, and I pray that in the language of the Psalms, that you would be, that the words of my mouth, the meditation of all of our hearts would be acceptable to you. Lord, our rock and our redeemer, we pray that you would be glorified. And we ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our son. Amen. Alexia Hush was the last great leader of the Crow Nation, the indigenous tribe that used to live along the, and range along the Yellowstone Valley that now live in a reservation outside of Billings, Montana. Plenty Coup, as he came to be known in English, uh, helped his people survive the loss of their way of life when white settlers came and decimated the buffalo population. Until then, the life of the Crow had centered upon, uh, you know, hunting buffalo and intertribal warfare. But after the Crow were forced to live on a reservation, their way of life was destroyed. And it meant, according to Plenty Coup, that his people no longer had a story to tell. He described this life to the white man after the white man came to an interviewer, and he said this, you know that part of my life as well as I do. You saw what happened to us when the buffalo went away. The hearts of my people fell to the ground, and they could not lift them up again. After this, nothing happened. There was little singing anywhere. Such a haunting phrase, after this, Nothing happened, as though history itself had come to an end. Uh, the people of the Crow Nation were able to distinguish one event in their lives from the other by placing everything that they did within a, a bigger story that gave their lives meaning. And when that bigger story was taken away from them, when they lost that story, their lives became unrecognizable even to themselves. It was put best by Pretty Shield, a crow woman on that reservation who told the same interviewer this, I am trying to live a life I don't understand. I can't help but wonder how many of us in the late modern world would say the same, that we're trying to live lives we don't understand. Uh, Truth is, we all have some sort of narrative that we place the, the world and the meaning of life in. The way that we make sense of the world is through a story. It's how we find coherence and meaning to the big questions of life, like who are we? Where do we find meaning and hope? What has gone wrong with the world and how do we get our way back? How do we fix it? And we're all living out some version of a story, but the stories that claim to make sense of our lives, they actually occupy a contested space both in our culture but also in our own hearts and in our own minds. And often it feels like we're going throughout the world unscripted. Recent research suggests that our bodies are actually hardwired for narrative, that we literally cannot function without a story. Neuroscientist Mark Turner writes this, story is the basic principle of how the mind works. Most of our experience, our knowledge, and our thinking is organized as a set of stories. A narrative structure is essential not only for effective communication, but for thinking itself. When children ask to hear a story, 
It's not simply a biological craving for amusement or a demand for attention, but it arises out of a genuine human need to make sense of the disparate experiences of our lives, and that need is addressed through storytelling. Now, there are other names for this. Uh, Psychologists call it mental maps or mental models of the world. Uh, Sociologists call it a worldview, but historically, it has gone by the name religion. And those who follow Jesus, for those of us who do that, the scriptures are the story of what flourishing in the world looks like. So as we end our Lenten uh, series and our practice this morning of of the art of reading scripture, I want to... Turn your attention to Luke chapter 4. Jesus returns to Nazareth uh, not as a visitor, but as a native son, as as somebody who knew that place better than it knew him. And he has just returned from being out in the wilderness for 40 days in communion with the Father. He is at a a, a point where he is at the height of his powers, and he, he is filled with the presence of the Spirit. And we come to this. If you have your Bibles, uh, open up to Mark chapter, or, I'm sorry, Luke chapter 4, verses 14 through 22. And as a way of honoring God with your body, I want to invite you to stand and, uh, as we read God's word. Just a simple change of posture this morning. Let us hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. And news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. Word is out about this new rabbi on the scene. He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. He assumed the posture of a rabbi, the teaching posture of a rabbi, and sitting down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. Can you imagine being in the presence of Jesus as he is teaching? You're like, nope, we got you. (laughs) Don't laugh at that. (laughs) He began by saying to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. We don't know what else Jesus said in this message. We know that the people assembled there were excited at first. They all spoke well of the gracious words. They were amazed at the things that were coming out of his mouth. But we know as we read on a little bit later in the story that the sermon ended with them wanting to kill him. That's never happened to me when I preach. So maybe I'm doing something wrong. Who knows? But Luke says that he begins his message by saying to them, today, this scripture, the one that I just read from Isaiah, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. 
And that word fulfilled is the same one that we read from a few weeks ago at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, I have not come to abolish scripture, but to fulfill it. And all throughout the Bible, this word plurao is used to describe a story or a prophecy from the Hebrew scriptures that is actively being brought into completion in and through the person of Jesus. And this is what I want you to see for this morning. A simple observation that sets the course for the rest of our time together regarding how Scripture functions in the life of the church and how we find our place in the story that unfolds. Jesus reads a prophetic word from the 8th century BC. It's in the form of a poem, and he reads it as if it is a story in search of an ending. And he sees himself as the climax to that story. And he sees the community that he calls together as somehow being a vital part in bringing that story toward its end. Now that's a very different way of reading the Bible than many of us are accustomed to. Uh, The old Princeton theologian Charles Hodge once referred to the Bible in a lecture as a storehouse of facts. That is, you know, you have a question and you you turn to the concordance in the back, say it's about, you know, marriage or or work or or happiness or something like that. You you turn to the verse and you find the answer. Now, now for sure, there is a great deal of wisdom in the Bible, what the rabbis called chokmah, or a kind of spiritual knowledge that is contained in the Proverbs and the laws and the precepts. But that does not override or deal with the fact that most of the Bible comes to us in the form of a story. In his own teaching, Jesus tells stories. So it's important for us to know that while it has laws, the Bible does not come to us primarily as a moral code where God says, live up to this. It doesn't come as a theology textbook with an enumerated list of doctrines and say, think like this and you'll find life. No, the way that the Bible and its authority comes to us is through telling a story and through giving us the invitation again and again to live into this, that this is what it looks like to inhabit this world that God created and over which God reigns. I love how the biblical scholar N.T. Wright puts it. He writes, Story authority, as Jesus knew only too well, is the authority that really works. You throw a rule book at people's head or offer them a list of doctrines and they can duck it or avoid it or simply disagree and go away. Tell them a story, though, and you invite them to come into a different world. You invite them to share a worldview or better, a God view. That actually is what the parables are all about. They offer, as all genuine Christian storytelling does, a worldview which, as someone enters into it and finds how compelling it is, quietly shatters the worldview they were in already. Stories determine how people experience God and the world and themselves and others. And his point is that a a really good story isn't just something that you read or a really good movie that you watch and then you forget about it. No, a really good story blows your mind. It stays with you for a long time. It transforms your imagination. It makes you want to join in and then find yourself in the plot. We all know what it's like to be drawn into a story. 
For those of you who are like me, you, you grew up watching Star Wars. And I mean those of you who grew up in the 1980s when the last good Star Wars movies were made, okay? Just to be clear. I spent a good portion of my childhood making those pew, pew, pew sounds, you know, and taking on the galactic empire in my mind. It was always lurking around my neighborhood in some way, riding my bike like I was dodging TIE fighters, getting ready to punch the hyperdrive. Like, that is how I rolled. I am fairly certain that there is a time, uh, one day when I was in second grade, when I only responded to people by quoting lines from Han Solo. I remember this girl bullying or, or bossing around on the playground, and I, I said to her something like, let's get one thing straight, your worshipfulness. I only take orders from one person, me. And if she would have said, it's a wonder you're still alive, I would have married her. Instead, she just looked at me confused and walked away. And I thought, well, Han Solo would be proud. The point is, I wanted to live in that story because that's what a good story does. It, it pulls you into its orbit. It, it, it pulls you in. It helps you find yourself. It helps you find your part. And Wright goes on to give this analogy where he describes the drama of Scripture as a five-act play. And in the first act, we have creation. We have this story about God and humanity in a, in a world that exists in a state of goodness, uh, what the Bible describes as shalom, where human actors begin their work tending to the garden, bringing creation to its fullness. And act two is where conflict is introduced. We encounter the enemy to God's plan, God's shalom is, is broken. In Act 3, then, God chooses a people named Israel. He leads them out of bondage as a way of foreshadowing what God intends to do to all of creation. But in this act, there's also the breaking of covenant and there's exile. So in Act 4, the story of God comes to a climax in the incarnation, the death the resurrection, the teaching, the life of Jesus of Nazareth. He steps into the story and says, everything that came before is fulfilled. And then the New Testament is the fifth act of the church. And it's, it's, the, it's the story that where the church comes alive. And we see in the Bible the first scene of the final act. We see the people of Jesus working out the implications of what renewal looks like in the world. And Wright goes on to say, that for those who are disciples of Jesus, that's where we come into the story. We are still part of Act 5. But the thing is, reading Scripture is like being in the audience who all along has had a script in their hands with the first four acts. We're given an epilogue in the book of Revelation about how the story is going to end. But then, suddenly, we get thrust onto stage in the middle of the fifth act without a script in our hands and are asked to, to act out the rest of the story in a way that is faithful to where it started and where it is going. The only choice we have is to improvise. We know it came before. We have the presence of the Spirit. We know where the story is going it started in a garden with God and humans together. It ends in a garden-like city where God is in their midst. But the question we have is how do we improvise faithfully in the middle of the story? Well, the only way to answer that question is you have to know the story well. 
And let me be clear, when I say improvisation, I'm not saying we just make it up as we go. Like Jesus reading Isaiah in the temple, it means that we are living in a way that makes sense of what came before and of what comes after. The challenge for us is that we do this amid a thousand rival stories that are clamoring for our attention, that each want their place up on the stage. We live in a story-saturated world. And in our late uh, postmodern, uh, post-Christian culture, this has all kinds of implications for how we live. We improvise amid a space that is heavily contested. Case in point, back in the 1970s, as he looked out on the landscape of his native United Kingdom, the theologian Leslie Newbegin predicted what he would call the rise of the political religions. That is, that as secularism continued and, and, and hollowed out traditions of the faith, that, that it would be the tendency of both the right and the left to shape current reality in light of a story where salvation is achieved through adherence to the aims and goals of a particular political party's platform. And failure to get in line would mean facing a type of damnation or exile, what we now call being canceled. But political religions are not the only stories out there that are clamoring for our hearts. The sexual revolution tells the story that bodily desire is at the very center of what it means to be an authentic person. That sex is just two bodies enjoying each other without consequences, without meaning. Consumerism and, and digital capitalism also tell a story that the essence of rational purpose in the world is to acquire things, that we are what we own. And it tells the story through the propaganda of more, that what had always been considered a vice throughout human history, namely the idea of unchecked and unlimited desire, is actually central to our sense of purpose, central to our well-being, that no matter how great our abundance, we assume that it is necessary and good to want more, even if it means exploiting undeveloped lands and undeveloped people. And maybe the most pervasive story out there is that you have no story. That it's up to you. If the narrative of secularism is true, then there, there's no more to you than this material form that you take. You're just an animal with time and chance on your side. You are the byproduct of natural selection and nothing else. There's no meaning or purpose to life other than what we assign to it. And the only thing keeping us going is survival and pleasure. And when we die, there will be no more to you. If, if any of those things are the script that you operate by, it's going to have a drastic implication on the way that you see the world and the way that you play your role in the story. But... If you are not here simply as a result of blind genetic mutation, where there's a God who created, a God whose image you bear, a God who created you to and made you to participate in the flourishing of creation. And if there is this narrative arc to where human history goes that describes both its brokenness and its promise, then to learn to play your role in the story is to become the person you were meant to be. It's not make-believe, it's not play-acting, it's actually the role that you were born to play. And the great irony of, of modern life is, as I said last week, we have traded in the 
authority of scripture, the authority of community, for the authority of the authentic self. But if you were made in a triune community of love, created in love, created to love, created to join in this venture that God has made you for, this, this God who is not far off in the world but who is near, then the only way you are going to become an authentic self is to find your place in his story. And so the question for all of us is not whether you have a story. The question is, what story are you living by? What story do you trust? And that's where the Bible comes in. Not only does it tell a story that gives coherence and meaning to our deepest questions about God, about who we are, about how the world works, the Bible tells an alternative story that subverts and uproots every other story that is out there. Catholic priest and philosopher Ivan Illich was once asked, after serving in South America for a number of years and watching decades of turmoil and instability, uh, he was asked, what is the best way to change a society? Is it the kind of violent revolution like the, the Bolsheviks in, in Russia or like the cultural revolution in China, or is it kind of gradual incremental reform? And he said this, Neither revolution nor reformation can ultimately change a society. Rather, you must tell a powerful new tale, one so persuasive that it sweeps away the oldness and becomes the preferred story, one so inclusive that it gathers all the bits of our past and our present into a coherent whole, one that even shines some light into the future so that we can take the next step. If you want to change a society... You have to tell an alternative story. And friends, that is exactly what the Bible does. It upends all of the ideological empires that are around in our world by telling an alternative story that is better simply because it is true. And that's what we want it to do to us to get inside of us, to get in our hearts, to mess with us, to tear down the empires of our hearts and our minds. And so if you read the Bible and it doesn't upset you from time to time, if it doesn't cause some sort of disorientation or discomfort or disequilibrium in your life, I, I hate to tell you, but you are probably reading it wrong. Because yes, the, this story, it will bring you comfort at times. It will bring answers to some of those deepest questions, but it will also question some of your deepest answers. Eugene Peterson captures it well. He writes this, Sooner or later we find that not everything is to our liking in this book. It starts out sweet to our taste, and then we find that it doesn't sit well with us at all becomes bitter in our stomachs. Finding ourselves in this book is most pleasant, flattering even. And then we find that the book is not written to flatter us, but to involve us in its reality. God's reality does not cater to our fantasies of ourselves. We need a complete renovation of our imaginations. We are accustomed to thinking of the biblical world as smaller than the secular world, Telltale phrases give us away. We talk of making the Bible relevant to the world as if the world is the fundamental reality and the Bible is something that is going to help us fix it. He goes on to say, what we must never be encouraged to do, although all of us are guilty of it over and over, is to force Scripture to fit our experience. Our experience is too small. 
like trying to put the ocean into a thimble. What we want is to fit into the world revealed by scripture to swim in its vast ocean. Studying the scriptures is an act of counterformation to all of the storylines that are out there. As we come into contact with the story of Jesus, as we swim in its ocean, it is a way of redrawing the mental maps we have of the world so that they are in alignment with the kingdom. But that said, it's a strange world that we enter into. And so reading the Bible is also an exercise in imagination. So as you read, particularly coming from the closed view of the secular West, as you step into a story where God is not only powerful and real, but God is involved intimately in your life, where, where death doesn't have the final word, where evil and darkness are real and at work, but where even they will be made to yield to newness of life and hope. In other words, entering into this story is an invitation to rethink reality from the ground up. But it's also an exercise that demands your participation to hear, to immerse yourself in this world, to get on with the business of carrying it forward the point of reading scripture well is to be shaped into a kind of person as Jesus was that is at home in the kingdom as he was in the world. And the Bible is the means by which God does his thing in us as part of a community by the power of the spirit to shape us into new people, to mold us in the image of Jesus so we can do what he is doing in the world. And we do this in community, we do this in the, with the presence of the Spirit, we do this with others who read uh, the Bible as well, who are also being shaped into the image of Jesus, so they can call us out on our stuff, so that they can challenge our assumptions, so they can put a check on all the ways that we want to place ourselves above the story. And we do this in conversation with other practices from the life of Jesus, like fasting and Sabbath and prayer and preaching the gospel and contemplation and demonstrating the justice and mercy of the kingdom. And in the process, when we do this, the story leads us to hope. And here's why this matters. It matters because there are all kinds of other things asking for our hearts and our attention. There are all kinds of other stories that are shaping us, whether that is the false narratives about ourselves, about what we believe about ourselves, about what we believe about our world, or whether it's the habits, the things that we do, the, those things that we do that do something to us, the kind of news we listen to and how often we do it, the kind of stories we immerse ourselves in, the ways that we give ourselves away to digital distraction, the relationships we have, the people we surround ourselves with, our environment. This, this city is shaping us in all kinds of ways. We are being shaped by our culture wherever we are, and it causes us to approach the world differently. I mean, we like to think that we make up our own minds about things, but over time, if you are unchecked, you start to become colonized by the stories around you. And so the scriptures are counterformation, one of the ways that we consciously partner with the Spirit to be shaped in the image of Jesus, instead of just acquiescing to all the stories around us. 
As we end, our, our practice of the week is to read scripture and to pray for the world through the reading of scripture. I'm reminded of the words of an ancient saint of the church. Be constantly committed to prayer and to reading scripture. By praying, you speak to God. In reading, God speaks to you. It's a reminder to let the words of this story be the lens through which you read the world. To be reminded that Jesus is the center, not this, not that, not the other. And if you've been following along in our community guide, there are all kinds of practices, all kinds of methods, all kinds of techniques, whether that's, you know, Lectio Divina, a meditative practice, guided prayer, or whether it's a, a practice like study, knowing the context, knowing how to read the Bible uh, according to its genre. These are all good and time-tested ways of meeting God in the library called the Scriptures. But as important as all that stuff is, as important as like technique and method and all that stuff is, the posture with which you come is way more important. Because if you get the posture wrong, you get everything wrong. In Luke 4, they hear the scripture read in the church. And the story ends with them wanting to kill him. There are things that are unclear about the scriptures, things that the church wrestles with. Sometimes it takes generations. But it's also true that sometimes the things that we wrestle with aren't the places where scripture is unclear. It's over the places where it is and we just don't like what it has to say. Whether that's about nonviolence or protecting the vulnerable, whether that's about things like wealth and greed or showing up faithfully to the limitations of our body, to our sexuality, we read it with ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. We hear what the Spirit is saying to you. You come with an inner ear open to the voice of God, an inner heart posture yielded to God, to his desire for you as you enter into the story. Friends, the most basic posture of an apprentice of Jesus is that of yieldedness and surrender. We come to the Bible with all our questions. Whatever answers that we think that we have settled on, we, we come as part of the, the scaffolding of practices through which we allow the Spirit to renew our lives for the sake of others. And when you come... When you read with a, a, a posture of receptivity, with this posture of I am here to hear your voice, to have all of my questions, all of my assumptions, all of my desires laid bare before you, come that I may yield to your goodness and your trust. When you come in that posture, God will transform you. And so, friends, may it be so with us.